0: Hi everyone and welcome to In Your Nature podcast with me, Ricky Whelan.
1: And me, Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland. Uh, great to be back, great to be chatting to you, Ricky.
0: Uh, excellent. No, Niall, I'm delighted. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. And before we get going, just a word to our sponsors. Uh, this podcast is supported by Leash, Offley and Westmead County Councils and the Heritage Council. And it's edited by Anne-Marie Kelly.
1: So, Ricky, uh, the temperatures have dropped. At the time of recording, um, you know, the, the, this frost outside my window, uh, it's uh, it's getting chilly. Uh, and some of the birds around my garden, I see they're starting to come to the bird tables and all that already. Um, but quite a few of the other birds that I would see during the summer have gone because there are migrants and they've disappeared. Um, so we thought for, for this episode, it might be fun to have a look at where are they now? Where do Ireland's birds go when they leave us uh, for the
0: winter? Absolutely, and uh, it's a very interesting question. And uh, it's the very same thing. I had the feeder set up for the first week of Garden Bird Survey, and I was looking down the list um, that's provided, and there's about, I think there's about 30 of the most commonly occurring garden birds there, and you're going, it's a good big list, but there's a few big names off it that you just won't see for a few months. So and it makes you think, uh, where are they? So, I mean, um, we were whacking it around, myself and yourself, during the week, and we came up with a, a short enough list, but lots of interesting species and a lot of big journeys to talk about so i think um i think this episode will uh it's going to bring us around the place it's going to bring us mostly to africa uh, a couple of times but um without but with sort of no rhyme or reason or pattern to our list i think we'll start off with it with a firm favorite and one we've spoken about in a conservation sense uh oh many times in 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 the corncrake i mean once it leaves uh well i mean you might sort of say where where, where, where you can find it first of all in ireland and then uh, where, where, where it goes uh, for the winter. Uh,
1: yes, I, a bird that I, a lot of uh, bird lovers will, will, will know and actually will mourn the loss of from much of Ireland because it's a species that would once have been super abundant across Ireland. It was incredibly common, um, but with changes in agriculture and um, and all of that it's really been pushed to the margins and there are projects underway to try and and, and save our remaining breeding population with, with, with some success, and I'm pleased to say uh, but the population really has dropped. You find them um, mainly in sort of uh, in, in the west and, and northwest particularly of Ireland now um, they're once present in all 32 counties uh, one of the best places of all to see them would be Torrey Island in Donegal, Inish Boffin Island in Galway is another very good spot for them uh, you get a few of them in Mayo, Birdwatch Ireland's own um, reserves on the on the Mullow Peninsula in Mayo are a good stronghold for, for corncrakes there as well uh, but around the country they're, they're few and far between um, which is, is is sad because it's, it's a bird that in Ireland we once took for granted uh, and it's a bird that would only of course be present in the summer in Ireland because strangely given that it's such a secretive bird it, h- it seems to hate flying it's a long distance migrant um, and uh, the, at this stage the the remaining Irish conquer population none of them are in Ireland at all, they've all left our shores um, a, a good couple of months ago
0: for a, a long-range migrant, when you, if you ever see them flying or even footage of them flying, you're like, how is it even it over that sort of two-foot wall, never mind down to Africa? It's crazy. Uh, really unwieldy looking things in flight. Um, they do make it quite a distance and they basically winter sort of southeastern side of, of Africa. Yeah. And I mean, the countries there, people, um, you imagine we're looking at Zambia, Malawi, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Uh, top sort of part of of South Africa and uh, Lesotho will be there too and and there's a couple of other places I I wouldn't even know sort of exist or be uh, changed names a few times since uh, I learned them off but uh yeah so you're talking about down there but they, they I, I believe they migrate down the kind of right- hand side of the, the eastern side of Africa they don't um they don't kind of come down what we'd say you know you'd often say a lot of migrants go down the Iberian sort of peninsula and down the, hmm. the, the the western half of, of Africa but they they, they they go all the way over east and, and go down that way
1: yeah that's right and, and that's something we're only finding out relatively recently uh, one of the, the the key things here is when people ask where do birds go for the winter where do Ireland's birds go for the winter specifically it's actually really hard to tell because we can't ask them it's very hard to track them uh, and the ways with you know the, the traditional way of doing it and still the, the most cost effective in a very um, a very good way is with, with bird ringing putting rings on the legs of these birds and then hoping that uh, if one is, is either caught alive or it's, fa- it's found dead somewhere on route people will note down that number and report it back um, but the return rate on that is inf- oh, incredibly low almost infinitesimally small and, and a bird like a corn crake particularly they're so secretive um, um, they're, they're hard enough to find when they're singing during the breeding season. It's, it's no mean feat to find one when it's on its wintering grounds when it has no reason to be making any noise when it's still skulking around in the, in the grass. Um, so it's, it's really modern developments like radio tracking and satellite transmission and GPS and all these different methods depending on the birds and the technology that are really revealing this now. Uh, so I think we can expect to find more and more in, 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 the, coming, in the coming years. it will be a lot of revelations about where Ireland's birds go um, but we can be pretty confident now that our corn crakes do head to that region of Africa.
0: Absolutely, and I suppose like, people might be wondering, like, why do they even bother? Like, we've described this this sort of this bird that, that 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 that's you know of conservation merit, and it's in a bit of bother, and it's like, why does it even come up to Ireland in the first place? Why does it go back? But basically, they're in pursuit of the endless summer and food and mates and. Um, that's where, where the food is, where there's less competition, perhaps, where there's less predators in that season. So really, they're trying to balance the books the best in, in favour of themselves, isn't it?
1: That's it. I mean, if you look in Ireland where corn crakes like to, like to nest, they like rank vegetation. Uh, they love to be in, in long grass. They like nettle beds. They like yellow flag iris. Plants like that. They want cover all around them. It's a bird that doesn't want to be out in the open. And, and if you go to places like Torrey, Inish Boffin, uh, Belmullet, you'll see that habitat uh, there looking really lush during the summer. You go back during the winter it looks quite different that vegetation has all died back there's very little by way of cover which means that um, those, those corn corncrakes would not feel secure they don't want to be in the open but also their food supply has disappeared as well so they have no choice but to go and have uh, a second summer and head down to southern Africa uh, and it's interesting because we still um, we, we, it's only with these the new tracking methods we're starting to work out what re- the routes they take because um, a lot of the, the other migrants we have um, you know, they, they're often hunted unfortunately in, in the Mediterranean region there's big numbers of birds like quail quen- Whale taken, birds like that, they're caught in nets, sometimes they're shot. It's actually quite rare that corncrakes are trapped in those nets. Um, so that suggests that they must be flying at a very high altitude, they're actually flying over the, over the nets, over the guns, uh, and so aren't being, uh, aren't being killed. Uh, so it's really, you know, they sort of disappear from Ireland and kind of turn up again in their wintering grounds and kind of knowing how they got from A to B is not quite so certain.
0: Let's do a seabird now. Mm. Um because they are they are by in their ecology very different. The manx shearwater is an interesting species in a migratory sense. Uh and 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 kind of I mean there is parallels between it and the corncrake. They are skulky things, they're rarely seen um unless you're you're sort of a uh you know, you're not going to see them on the sort of beach in the Hinge. You have to sort of commit yourself a little bit to a bit of sea watching. Um but yeah tell us about those so
1: the Manx Shearwater yeah it's one of these bird watchers birds if you know where and when to look for them you can see them in their hundreds in Ireland Uh, uh, and I often love to to watch them along the Wicklow coast just streaming past in the late summer as they're they're, they're feeding around that area Um, but they're birds that uh, in the breeding season they they, they nest on on offshore islands um, and they are nocturnal around the nest sites at least where they're feeding during the day but they don't return to their chicks in their nesting burrows uh, until after dark uh, where they make the most bizarre sounds and so that's that's what, what they do there and so the, the round, uh, during the breeding season which is for that species it's the summer here in Ireland uh, they they spend the, their time there they can go way way out to sea they can travel long distances and then return in the evenings with, with food for their chicks they're, they're real ocean wanderers they really only come to land because they need to breed they're much happier out at sea and outside the breeding season they, they, they wander down in the Atlantic what they actually do is um, as far as we can tell to do kind of a figure of eight migration down into the Atlantic Ocean. So they head right down and, and it seems that many of our Irish Manx shearwaters winter um, largely off the coast of Brazil and then loop back around and some then come up along the eastern seaboard of the United States and eventually come back to Ireland. Um, this again, something that's only really being discovered because of tracking data. But I think it's really cool. We have this 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 bird, for which Ireland is so important, we have a huge proportion uh, of the, the, the global uh, breeding population of this species nesting here in Ireland. And then they, they link us to somewhere like brazil and um, even though they're, they're never on land in brazil they're using those waters um, very much and uh, that's something i think that a lot of people are surprised by That these birds will travel so far so far and yet so effortlessly they're just sort of gliding over the waves and, and getting down there with very little effort so it's really an amazing bird an amazing an amazing journey
0: no, oh, they're gorgeous, and I mean they're like sort of miniature albatrosses that the wings spread and rigid over the waves, and just just gliding along the, the sea. They're, they're 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 amazing, and I mean you talked a bit about the um, the tracking data, and the tracking data is in sort of. Um, you know it's not pulled out of the sky there's various technologies and I mean you talked about the sort of most low tech uh, of those in that the rings that, 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 that ornithologists put on and scientists put on the birds I mean and the other two is kind of there's the, the geolocators which is quite a clever technology um, but it does mean the bird has to be caught again and that's, that means you're kind of restricted to birds that you are fairly certain you can catch again at a colony or in its burrow or whatever and waters uh, lend themselves well to that the likes of puffins with a lot of seabirds do because they return to the same colonies and often the same burrows and stuff that they've and same gaps in the walls and, and all that that they've been the year before so scientists can grab them then and remove the remove those geolocators and the way geolocators work is it takes a fix of the the light the the level of daylight and the time through very clever maths And the pattern of the same, they can work out exactly on the globe where 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 they were at that time, and give us fairly certain fix on the location. but I suppose the restriction there is you have to get the bird again, so there's a little bit of risk there. But they're they're kind of they're they're cost effective for for that reason because um they're they're not very heavy and there's not a huge amount of technology in them, so they're they're quite a clever clever use. And the other one is satellite tags, which people will have seen in sort of National Geographic documentaries for you know put on all sorts of animals. But with birds, because they're such sort of light animals, um by 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 engineering to so they can fly, um you you're restricted to the weight. I mean you can't sort of hang this huge saddle of a, of a tag off them. So it, the, that technology is restricted in that way. So you're really only able to do that with larger birds. But um, which brings me to the next species um, and a, a species that's been satellite tagged um, in recent years in, in Britain and Ireland and getting some interesting results. But satellite tags allow a live feed on the location of the bird, which is really, really cool. And you can log in and look. And you know what I'm getting at. I'm getting at the cuckoos.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. The the, the, the an amazing bird, an amazing migrant, uh, species of course that when they they, they, they they make their first migration they're on their own they're, they're, they're raised by unwitting foster parents um, unlike birds like geese for example where their parents show them their first migration um, and on the routes to follow the cuckoos just do it purely by instinct and until very recently we've had no idea really at all exactly how Irish cuckoos get to their winter grounds we know that they leave Ireland um, and then they head down to Central Africa essentially um, but it was long thought that well they must get there by the fastest route they probably head into France they head across um, across the Pyrenees probably down across through the Straits Gibraltar into Morocco and down that way and um, uh, and this satellite tagging work that's been done by the British Trust for Ornithology and the National Parks and, and Wildlife Service um, and it's ongoing as we speak just this past summer these birds were tagged it's been really interesting so i um, just logging onto the website right now and seeing where they are um, two of the cuckoos we have uh, we have one of them um, which one of the Irish birds um, which is currently um, in the Central African Republic um, and uh, it got there um, it went left Ireland it seems to have gone across um, the southern uh, southwestern England into France moved all around there went down to the Alps but then went back went then across the Pyrenees it seems then across into into North Africa from there. Um, but not through the Straits of Gibraltar. It looks like it went across, um, maybe over the Balearic Islands, down that way, and then it's, it's currently in the Central African Republic, where it's somewhere in in some sort of jungle or rainforest at the moment. And then the other cuckoo 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 talk, which was um, ringed in Killarney National Park, um, it also left Ireland. It went across uh, southwestern England, down to the Alps, and then took a completely different route. It went down across over northern Italy into the Balkan Peninsula, down through Greece, uh, and is currently um, as As we speak, it's in the Congolese rainforest, uh, which is just remarkable. And just a few short years ago, it would have been impossible to have that level of detail. And now we can actually track these birds in real time. It's mind-blowing.
0: Oh, it is absolutely, and an ex-colleague of ours who people, our 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 members and our listeners might know, um, Sam Sam Bailey, who did a stint as warden on on Cape Clear, he was heavily involved in that. He's with the National Parks now and and stuff. That so he's a sort of ringing nut, and um, yeah, it just it just it's so exciting to be able to log in and see stuff live. It's just it's thrilling, and um you know just the anticipation see if they've moved and how far and if they've survived and it's it's really it's it's really exciting and and also to um just to confirm and to be able to verify um these things because like an awful lot of his guesswork I mean you know you find one random carcass in in a random place and make some sort of you know presume it's got there in a straight line and it's not always the case Oh absolutely
1: and you know what I think this is showing too is the birds are very responsive to things like weather events if a storm front arrives or uh, it's pretty wet in some area they will fly around that Uh, we're seeing the fact that they often if if they seem to need food they tend to stop and pause and then sort of go around sort of an area foraging might go back north again and then back south it's not literally just going A to B so sometimes when you see these maps and I remember these in school they'd show like an arrow pointing from Ireland to Southern Africa or whatever and showing that's where the bird goes but not necessarily in a straight line at all Um, they could be going all over the place Um, and and we don't still fully understand how their navigation systems work how they manage this having said that we are learning more and more and it seems that some birds are able to actually sort of see the Earth's magnetic field so that seems to be um, a part of it it seems that some birds so of these migratory species have magnetic particles in, in their eyes that allow them we think to somehow perceive the magnetic field of the Earth and it's thought that the angle of that field tells them their latitude on the planet because the angle it sort of comes directly out of the, out of the poles and then sort of curves out as it goes around the Earth and then goes back into the poles then straight so it, it's it's never the same angle no matter where you are on the Earth and that's it seems how they, they do we know that other birds like the, the, the corncrake we were speaking about earlier they navigate using the stars uh, and we know that uh, corncrake uh, young corncrake after their first migration on the return leg they always return to the exact same spot where they first saw the night sky and they fix this mental map of the stars in their mind and they know precisely where that is and they get they can get it to an accuracy of just within a couple of metres which is astonishing <laughs> modern technology struggles with that for us humans uh,
0: yeah it's hard to get your head around that there is um, like we don't know the exact routes of migration always until you know we have those breakthroughs or we have an awful lot of data to, to, to add, to that. but there is one basic rule of thumb with bird migration it's a north-south shift in spring it's a shift north so all our our, our African migrants and the swallows and the swifts and uh, the white throats and black caps and all that they all sort of shift upwards into Europe out of Africa uh, and then and, and the birds have spent the winter in, in, in Ireland the waders uh, the, the the swans the geese they'll all shift northwards up into Scandinavia uh, Iceland sort of um, Siberia all those sort of places and then uh, the flip side in the, come the autumn then there's a shift uh, uh, southwards um so they're all sort of chasing um nicer conditions for them as per their their uh Their standards, if you like.
1: That's right. And it's very interesting that this migration phenomenon, it's something you see across all of the Northern Hemisphere. So all across uh, Europe, Asia, North America, parts of North Africa, you see these birds all moving, well not all of them, but many of these species moving south, particularly the insect-eating species. Uh, So we see this migration from Ireland down to Africa. You see migration from East Asia to places like Australia, New Zealand, uh, Southeast Asia as well. Migration from North America like the boreal forest of Canada down to places like the Caribbean or to South America, what's much less prevalent in in the world of birds is the opposite. It's birds that breed in the Southern Hemisphere migrating uh, north to the Northern Hemisphere for to, to spend the summer there. Uh, it, there's very few species do that. Um, and it makes sense, though, if you look at a globe of the world or a map and you see um, the, the majority of the world's land is in the Northern Hemisphere, it, it, and it's very much towards the poles in that part as well. Um, in the Southern Hemisphere, the land generally doesn't get as, as far south, at least the, the most inhabited areas, Part of Antarctica, of course. Uh, the southernmost part, apart from that, would be Southern South America as a Patagonia that part of Chile Argentina the Falkland Islands that kind of area and we do see some of those birds migrating north particularly particularly geese that breed there they do move just like like our geese in the in the northern hemisphere and move south but it's really a, it really is a north south phenomenon for migration rather than the other way around
0: what about this swallow i mean the swallows everyone's favorite yeah. i mean some of the swallows aren't even gone that long um you yep. know really we're, we're we're I don't like aging the episodes but now we're in i mean we're in the first week of um sorry the last week of November Um, and some swallows would have held on right into October
1: Yes and people contact Birdwatch Ireland all the time asking is there a problem have my swallows broken or something are they going to survive (laughs) they actually have a very long breeding season Um, so they they make hay while the sun shines or they make babies while the sun shines quite literally Um, if they can extend their nesting season if the weather is good enough to make sure that the conditions aren't so bad there's enough food around they'll continue breeding into October when the vast majority of other migrants have already left Uh, so um, uh, you know they 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 they'll arrive with us in, in usually around, around April. Some some will be in March, uh, and they'll stay right through September, October, uh, and then they head south from there. And our swallows, it's very interesting because we are seeing changes in their migratory behaviour. As far as we can tell, the vast majority of our swallows here in Ireland they they spend the winter uh, in southern Africa. So they go right down to, to places like South Africa, um, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Namibia, that kind of area. Uh, and they go there. But it seems that an increasing, a small but increasing number of European swallows are actually only going now as far as places like Iberia or North Africa. They're not bothering to cross the Mediterranean or the Sahara. Uh, and although it's a small proportion of the overall population, that number is growing year on year. And that would suggest very strongly that climate change is, pl- is playing a role in them changing behavior. And behavior that's, that's evolved over millions of years is is changing very rapidly, so studying abundant migratory birds like swallows can tell us a lot about the impact we humans are having on the planet.
0: Absolutely, and if people look at the distribution maps, the the, the breeding and the the winter distribution, like barn swallows did the, the species we share with with uh, like an awful lot of places so like basically this huge ribbon um all across the northern um hemisphere is their breeding um their their their, their breeding distribution if you like and then if you look at the winter distribution it's not, uh, below the equator essentially and a huge ribbon across that even into like parts of like the northern territory in australia like to get that far and um but it's 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 likely that when the, all the books and and all the websites are are updated in in whenever as as, as that cycle happens that you're going to start seeing a, a blue uh, blue sort of uh, blobs across the north of africa and, and and in southern Iberia which and that's down to probably enough insects for them to survive on for, for for the winter and why would you push down and i mean we see the opposite effect with short stopping and um, with the with with hooper swans for example where they just don't come as far anymore because the ice sheets or the, the snow doesn't extend as far anymore for the same reason
1: and, and one of the theories behind this is that for for these birds uh, a big part of their migration it's genetically coded so the birds don't necessarily have much say in what they do for many species they fly uh, a preset direction and a preset distance, more or less, responding to local weather conditions and and feeding conditions and so on as part of that. Uh, But it seems what happens is like some of these swallows that are are not bothering to to, to go very far. They're staying in in Iberia. In fact, we even get records of some some very small number of swallows that don't leave Ireland at all, it seems. Cork and Kerry usually get a few records in January or February, and they're birds that have remained in Europe. Uh, And it seems that those birds are taking a big risk, whether they know it or not, because if they're suddenly hit by a very cold snap... Uh, they will die because there won't be any insects they won't be able to feed. In a couple of days of that, they they will perish. But it seems that the ones that have stayed behind in Iberia, they're doing quite well. It's warm enough there in in many parts of southern Spain and Portugal for them to survive. Uh, And that's something genetically predisposed them to to that kind of behavior, where other swallows would just head on and head to 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 Africa. Uh, Of course, what happens then is if they're successful and they're thriving and then they fly back north to breed, well they haven't had to go so far and they haven't had to undergo the rigours of such a long migration. They're fitter, they're in better condition they're less likely to be killed by predators or by by starvation, therefore they're more likely to breed early, they're going to have more chicks they're going to be more successful when they breed because they're fitter Uh, and they pass those genes for the short stopping migration onto their chicks and so over generations bearing in mind that generations for these birds is is just one year, um, that migratory behaviour changes Uh, and uh, so it's too early to say but we maybe starting to see that with the swallow
0: it's very very quick evolution it's you're talking about hundreds of millenniums normally when in, in when we're talking evolution and this has happened in in what maybe maybe not our lifetime but uh, certainly in a century yeah Um, which is which is so rapid it's frightening Let's talk about another summer favorite in the Swift. I mean, you can you could set your watch on Swift's arriving sort of first week of May, um, which is amazing. And which sort of it gives it gives oxygen to your theory about it being sort of genetically inbuilt there. When they move, how far they move, where they end up. And there's like no real other explanation for it, you would think. But the, the Swift... Um, leaves Europe. It's got a big distribution as well. We're on the western edge, so they don't, the, the common swift, the apis apis, doesn't, it's, doesn't exist in the Americas. There are other swifts that, 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 that live over there and it goes sort of right over to the, the Asian subcontinent and uh, all that. So a big blob across from Ireland all the way to, to India, basically, a um, bit further even. And um, then the, the whole population, they kind of, they filter down uh, into the, the south of the equator, into the Congo Basin which people might think is just the Congo but the, the the Congo Basin takes in parts of Zambia Tanzania even Angola and and, and other parts as well so it's a much bigger I mean Congo is a big place uh, but the Congo Basin and the reach of the Congo Basin is, is is much further still and the reason they go down there is because at that time of year the, the rains the, everyone's heard of, you know the, the rains of Africa um, and after that there's a profusion of, of winged insects and they just basically stay full on insects and stay in good body condition before for heading out and like they don't need The trees there, they don't perch, they don't do anything, they're still flying around. We we've discussed swift's on two podcasts now and the how amazing their ecology is that they just just spend all that time on the wings. So they're basically chasing that endless summer and making sure there's a glut of, of food for them. But on the other hand, the guys coming from the Asian side, um and sort of Central Europe, or, or East, sorry, way sort of Far Eastern Europe, um, they're coming down the right-hand side of, of Africa and, and filtering down that way through, through, through sort of Egypt and, and, and the Horn of Africa. And they're joining our guys then, and they're all sort of, um, you know, sort of uh, coalescing in, 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 in the Congo Basin.
1: It really is remarkable and, and these birds are just so attuned to the, to the weather conditions and to the food availability that they just spend the their non-breeding season basically just milling around that section of Africa. It's nothing to them to fly hundreds of kilometres in a day in search of food, going back and forth and that whole time, as you said, Ricky, they will never land. Um, when we did the, the previous uh, episodes we discussed swifts, we get correspondences from people saying that we're making it up or that we're, we must be lying or mistaken but it's amazing. Those birds, those swifts that left, uh, left Ireland here at the end of the summer and are currently somewhere in Africa moving around, they won't land again till they return to, to the nest site in, 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 the, in, the, in the attic of the roof space, or the church steeple or wherever in Ireland. That'll be the next time they land. So although they're in Africa, they're only using the airspace of it, they're not landing at all. And um, because of that, it means they're not tied to, to solid objects. It means they can move wherever the food is, which means it's, it's a very successful strategy. But it's only because of millions of years of evolution that have honed that body shape and that supreme aerial ability that they're able to do that.
0: There's a rare, curious little species um that i want to to discuss uh and I want to learn about it myself. I don't know much about them in the redneck phalarope. <laughs> yes. is uh, they're 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 curious little things they're like what 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 a a child would draw a a sort of duck as with a sort of funny little narrow beak um you know, kind of like a little cartoon bird. I don't know, they're, they're funny. Tell us about them. So
1: the rednecked phalarope, it's, it's, a, it's a strange bird. It, it's well worth looking up. Uh, phalarope is spelt with, with a PH rather than an F. Um, so um, rednecked phalarope, it's, it's one of only three phalaropes we find in the world, and, and they are members of the wader family. And if you saw a silhouette of one, you'd say, yeah, that, that's a wader. It's got, it's got uh, long legs. It's got a long pointed beak, a long neck, um, a pointed sort of rear end. It's the sort of shape of, in very general terms, it looks a bit like the shape of a red shank or, or, or a bird like that. Um, however it's a very dinky little thing very very small very very colorful and uh, which is unusual for a lot of waders to have such a such a colorful uh, combination of, of colors on them with that red neck lovely mottling gray and white on them they're gorgeous and um, it's a bird that um before we even get to the migration it kind of um it, it sort of bucks the trend in a lot of ways it's a species where um the female is the more colorful and the more dominant of the pair she's the one that sings she fights other females and um, t- for the, the ability to, to, to mate with some of the males then what she does is she's mated with the male and laid her clutch of eggs she then scarpers and flies off and the male is left fully to do all the parental duties himself and um, because he's doing the incubation and the feeding of the chicks his plumage is more muted and more camouflaged because he needs to, to blend in so in the majority of, of these bird species where we see sexual dimorphism it's, it's the, the female that does the more sort of incubating and feeding <coughs> role with the phalaropes that's different um, there's an amazing way of feeding what they do is they go out into, into the middle of a water a, a pond or a lake and they spin round in a circle now these lobed feet, like a coot, so even better than webbed feet, they have sort of webbing around the edge of each toe, um, but it can collapse back down so on, there's less drag on the return stroke in the water, if that makes sense. Uh, and they spin in a circle, which creates a vortex, and this brings up tiny, tiny little particles of food um, up to the surface of the water, little, 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 tiny microscopic invertebrates, and then they use their long needle-like bill, they stick it into the water, and they use the surface tension to make capillary action to bring the food up into, into their mouths uh, from the tip of their beak. So that surface. Tension is important for them, which means that when you have uh, a lot of water pollution, uh, the surface tension is broken. Um, you may remember in school, we, we a lot of us did those experiments where you put a drop of washing up liquid into a bowl, and it breaks the surface tension, and the, the piece of tissue paper or whatever moves. And um, if, if, if there's pollution in water, there's no capillary action uh, possible because the surface tension is gone, and the food won't get into the bird's beak. So they're very prone to um, to pollution. Um, Ireland is home to one of the southernmost breeding populations in the whole world. It's a species that. For, it used to breed up in the the, the the Mullet Peninsula of County Mayo, became extinct there in the early part of the 20th century. And after lo, many, many, many years of hard work um, at our, our reserves there, the Bird Churn reserves on, on the Mullet, um, our colleague Dave Suddeby and, and people working with him have managed to get that bird to come back now. It was a small breeding population has now re-established itself there. And that is absolutely incredible. That you know it's 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 amazing to have that bird back. I know we often talk about the of doom and gloom in these podcasts and worry about the, <coughs> the state of the environment. That that's that's a that's a positive sign, at least, that this this beautiful little bird, this fairy bird is was called this dainty little wader, but that's so unique, has managed to come back to Ireland. So
0: where do they migrate? <laughs> well, I was just getting to that, so that's
1: really interesting. <laughs> so um we don't uh, we don't we don't we can't say with certainty where the Irish um rednecked phalaropes migrate to, but we found some interesting studies that have been done from birds in, in, in Shetland and some of the Scottish islands. Because this species it's found, it breeds across the, the, the very northern parts of, of North America, Europe and Asia. In, in you know, sort of Sparsely distributed because the habitat's quite specific. Um, and we know that um, the European breeding birds and the Asian breeding birds, they head south and, and stay within the Old World. However, it seems that the birds breeding in the Scottish islands, uh, tracking data has shown, they actually fly up and fly over Iceland and Greenland and down across all of the the northern part of North America and winter in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Peru and Bolivia, bobbing around in the water um, and and spend the non-breeding season there. And it could well be that this small population that we have in Mayo is actually um, an offshoot of that Scottish population because they're the closest breeding birds and there's also breeding birds in Iceland that do the same. So it could very well be that our Irish bird are an extension of the North American population that winters off the coast the coast of Peru, which I think is just mind blowing. Nobody would think such a tiny little bird would do such a mad thing.
0: And other very common little wobblers here in the summer, a bit of a confusion species in themselves is is the chiffchaff and the willow wobbler. They're a bit interchangeable until they start singing them, um, because even some good 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 bird watchers uh, will still mix them up by eye. You know they are very similar little brown jobs, I suppose. But uh, tell me about those and. Where where are they now? So
1: both the, the chiffchaff and, and the willow warbler again these are real birdwatchers birds. I think a lot of non birdwatchers people who are just beginning don't realise how common these birds are in Ireland in the summer. They're they're really quite abundant across most of Ireland. Uh, they're migrants, of course, that come here. Uh, they fly here to feed on our on the insects in the summer and then uh, and then leave us for the winter. Uh, as you said, they look incredibly similar. It's it's one of these uh, dreaded confusion pairs that a lot of beginning birdwatchers, when they look in a, in a field guide, they think. Those birds are pretty much identical. How could I possibly tell those apart? And then, of course, when you see them in the field or in the trees, they're not staying still. They're flitting all over the place. They're incredibly active. As you said, the song is a, is a good way to tell them apart. But what if you happen to find one that isn't singing or that's a female that doesn't sing? Um, um, one of the ways you can tell them apart, if you have a good view, it's actually by the what we call the primary projection. I'm not going to get too technical here. Essentially, it's the length of the flight feathers and how far they extend along the, from, from the other feathers in the wing. And as a general rule, um, birds with longer flight feathers, longer primary feathers, tend to fly further on migration. And that's something that we very much see with the Chiffchaff and with the Willow Warbler. Um, the Willow Warbler is a long-distance migrant. It has longer flight feathers than the than the Chiffchaff. If you saw them side by side, it's actually quite obvious if you have a good view of the wings. And it flies all the way to Sub-Saharan Africa. This dainty little thing, it looks so delicate, and yet it can fly really far down to, down to, to Central Africa, though that kind of area. So it crosses the. Sahara. The Chifchaff has shorter wings and it's a shorter distance migrant. Um, they still leave us but what they do is they head to the Mediterranean basin and it seems that our Chifchaffs most likely winter in Iberia or perhaps the coast of North Africa but they tend not to cross the Sahara and you can actually see that when you see them in, in, in the flesh or in the feather you can notice that difference in the wing length and that that's, that's shows you all about really about their migratory strategies and how they've evolved. So these two species they look so similar in fact in behaviour they're very different.
0: They're starting to get them in Chiff in Britain over winter. And so, are they, that's a similar thing. Are they not moving as far, or are they, have they been pretty nearby for the winter anyway, or should they be down in, in the sort of, you know, the Horn of Africa or wherever?
1: It's interesting. There's, we're still finding out more about this because we're seeing it in Ireland as well. that There's increasing numbers of, of chiff-chaffs spending the winter in Ireland. We're also seeing um, a, another form or subspecies, potentially different species, called the Siberian chiff-chaff, which is a bit paler has a different call. They're wintering in small numbers in Ireland as well. It seems from ringing studies, because these birds are too small to put any kind of, of of satellite tag on we're talking really small little birds so you know smaller than a sparrow they're too small but they wouldn't survive it so we'd have to use the ringing data uh, and it seems that um, the Irish birds the Irish chiffchaffs, chaffs do still migrate it seems that it's other chiffchaffs chaffs from elsewhere in Europe that are coming to spend the winter with us um, or even from parts of Asia uh, we're still finding that out this is a very very new thing uh, but it just shows you you can't kind of take things for granted you would think that yeah it's just the chiffchaffs chaffs that breed here staying behind but, but apparently not And um, they are still they are still moving our chif down to the Mediterranean and new birds are coming in, as far as, far as we can tell. Uh, certainly, um, you know, we said how difficult they are to, to, to tell, the par- tell apart, the willow warbler and the chif-chaff. If you see one of these little warblers, and um, I should describe it, they're, they're sort of browny, greeny birds with a little stripe over their eye and a line through their eye, a little narrow bill. Uh, if you see one in your garden in the winter, it's going to be a Chiffchaff because there are no records of willow warblers overwintering at all in Ireland. It just doesn't happen. Uh, the Chiffchaffs, though, the numbers, though they're small, they are increasing and you will see them in the winter here now.
0: Let's think about another favourite. It's just jumping me. Another seabird, the puffin. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, so everyone loves the puffins. What always happens with puffins is you start seeing all the lovely photos of, of puffins in the, in, the, in, the, in the summertime, early summertime, and then everyone's like, oh, I want to go see a puffin. And by the time they actually go and try find puffins on the Cliffs of Moher or uh, somewhere else, they've actually gone back to sea. Um, so where have they gone? And they're quite, they, I mean, they don't hang around for no, for no reason. They get out of town quite, quite early.
1: That's right. If you want to see your puffins, uh, go in June. You have the best chance there. May, May June, July. Um, but by the, the start of August, they just vanish. They just, and they all go en masse it's, there's a mass exodus from the colonies one day they're there the next day just, they've disappeared um, the tracking data showing us what they do it's quite remarkable they don't really go south for the winter what they do is they go west and they head over first of all to it, it, it seems to be off the coast of Newfoundland in Canada and they head out there they feed up there for a while they dive very deep under the sea to find to find fish they don't go to land they only go to land to breed all the rest of the time they're out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean bobbing around like corks and then it seems that what happens is they move down to the water's well south of Iceland right in the middle of the the, the Atlantic uh, and just sort of stay there for several months like floating around in the water Diving down to catch fish, uh, and then uh, come uh, come the late spring, they fly back to their breeding colonies, where they go back to their burrows and they they nest under the ground and lay their eggs, uh, and then repeat the whole cycle again. So, uh, they they're really out of sight of humans for the vast majority of their lives. Uh, they they're a bird that you know they're, they're so colorful, they're, they're so charismatic, and yet they spend a very small proportion, only about a quarter of their their, their lives are actually spent in close proximity to humans, and um, so it's uh, and, and near land. So that's something that's kind of a sobering thought when people. Are you know sitting down to their Christmas dinner or whatever? Our puffins are bobbing around in the middle of the Atlantic in freezing stormy conditions, um, but thriving.
0: It's totally alien to us. It's just, it's frightening. And an ad came on for for a documentary about that that man. His name slips my mind, that 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 road from from America to to Ireland there back during the the the, the recent months. That just the whole concept of being out at sea on your own in the dark is just so frightening to us and for them it's just that is where the party is and they don't like being at land it's just a it's just it needs must to, to somewhere to put your eggs and, and, and the youngsters and, and then get back out uh, out to sea so no, they're, they're, they're fascinating little things and um, yeah always always in awe of them but yet so don't you've got a few months now to plan your trip so don't miss them in in, in, in June okay um, get out and see see the puffins and let's think about our bird of the week we need a migration link and um, one thing I want to mention is that we have so at the start of the show I talked about the sort of 30 most common birds that are mentioned on the Garden Bird Survey uh, form. They're our resident birds mostly, and they're the ones that are here summer and winter and as parents they flip to feeding their, 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 their chicks insects uh, come spring when they're nesting and the, the reason being is because the best protein and the best building blocks is is that sort of stuff, that protein you get in, in the insects, it gets them out of the nest because the most dangerous place for a bird to be is at the nest, just vulnerable there, so they want to get them up and out and get the fat on them and get their feathers grown and all that sort of stuff but when, they, when the chicks fledge and they go about their business then, and it, it, it's almost timed with autumn then and harvest and there's just a glut of stuff in the countryside, so the birds, a lot of them just flip straight into eating seeds and fruits and all that sort of stuff and we're kind of in coming to the end end of that period now as the, as the frost starts so the swallows can't do that the warblers can't really do that uh, and stuff, so they're like, they have to get out of town so as soon as they start noticing the daylight shortening and the insects starting to sort of wane a bit, they're, they're heading south so that's what's happened there, so that's the difference between our, 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 our residents and, and our migrants, but some of them um, hedged their bets here and have established here, like we talked about Chiff Chaff have been doing it a bit now and starting to do that and a bit about short stopping and, and the swallows now are, are starting to show that but one that's been showing up at the bird feeders for for some time that we we would have always traditionally accepted was gone gone south is the blackcap. So let's do let's talk about blackcap as our bird of the week. Uh, absolutely, a remarkable
1: little species, and as you said there, Ricky, a bird which we're seeing in the Irish Garden Bird Survey has been steadily increasing over the. This is you know the thirty five years now, the thirty five winters consecutively the survey has been going on. When it started thirty five years ago, uh, nobody would have thought that black blackcaps really on this on a survey in such a way widespread basis and now they're quite a, a, I won't say a common, but a frequent guard visitor. Many, many people can expect to see them in their gardens. They're quite an easy bird to identify, both in their appearance and in their behaviour. I know a lot of warblers can be difficult, but um, the black cap, essentially we're talking a, a sort of a beigey, grey coloured bird, roughly the size of a sparrow, but more slender. So greyer below, a bit browner on the back, but still still a, a very um, a very pale looking bird. Um but the male has this black cap on top of its head. It's like the whole top of his head is black above his eyes. And the female or the juvenile males as well, because you will see those too in the, in the winter, they have rusty red caps. Um, so they're, it's a very easy bird to identify. Uh, also, you can identify them by behavior because when they turn up in your garden in the winter, uh, they're incredibly feisty. Uh, they tend to fight off other birds that are much larger than themselves. They're very aggressive. Uh, and that's because... That food is a lifeline for them. They're desperate to eat it. In the summer, there are widespread breeding species in Ireland. They're quite a common breeding bird, but they don't really come into gardens so much there. They're a bird of the woodlands and of, of, of woodland clearings and woodland edges. And they're also one of the, the best singers in all of the bird world as well. I think I think that it's one of, definitely one of Ireland's finest singers. And uh, One of the, the, the joys of the, of the dawn chorus is listening to the blackcaps. So although we're, I mean, although we're talking mostly about winter birds, it's probably worth listening to the, the summer song of a blackcap here so people can hear how beautiful it is for themselves now that's a sound you won't hear in the winter when they're in your garden those birds don't sing they're all about feeding and surviving those winter temperatures and then and then moving on and bird feeders in gardens have become lifelines for them Uh, these birds have turned up in our gardens and they uh, they then uh, can rely on the peanuts or the suet or whatever it is and that carries them through Now, you mentioned there, Ricky, about the the changing behaviour, how this used to be just a summer visitor to Ireland and now they're spending the winter. It seems that the the blackcaps that breed in Ireland still head south to the Mediterranean region as they always did. That's still going on. What seems to be happening is these these blackcaps that are overwintering now in, in gardens in Ireland and in Britain they breed in parts of Central Europe, parts of Germany, Poland, areas like that. Uh, and it seems what's happened is, the theory is at least, it may be down to a weird genetic mutation that has taken hold, possibly brought by climate change, we don't know. But um, what what happened was, I mentioned earlier that many of these migratory songbirds they fly a preset distance in a preset direction. Uh, And they haven't much control over that. They just do what their genes tell them to do. But a slight mutation can mess that up. And it seems what may have happened with with, with, uh, some birds, they will uh, fly the preset distance, but in the wrong direction. They go off on the wrong point of the compass. And for most birds, that would be fatal. If you're, let's say, a willow warbler uh, from Germany, and you're supposed to winter in sub-Saharan Africa, that's a long distance. You're flying thousands of kilometers. So if you have a genetic mutation that sends you off the right distance but in the wrong direction and you go west instead of south, you're going to end up switching off your your, your clock in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and you're going to die. There's no, there's, no, uh, there's no food or land for you there. The black caps migrate a shorter distance and it seems that they were flying the right, uh, the right distance in the wrong direction, but that happened to coincide with them arriving into Ireland and Britain. And not only did they survive... They manage to thrive in all this food that we had in our gardens. And then they return back to their Central European breeding grounds in the spring. They've had a good winter. They're fitter. Um, they've got back a little earlier. They're able to get the better territories. So they're more successful when they're breeding. And their chicks inherit this wrong gene. And they continue the cycle. They go the wrong way. And they come back. Uh, and this goes on generation after generation until the wrong way becomes the right way. Um, it's actually a more successful strategy for them to do that and so that's you know what blows my mind about it that's evolution happening in our lifetimes Ricky and uh, this is something that didn't happen when we were kids uh, and it's happening now people think that evolution is something that happens over the periods of millions of years um, and it does but it's also something that happens constantly it never stops it's an ongoing process the, the birds and all the other organisms we see in the, in the world right now it's just a snapshot of biological diversity at the time we happen to be alive go forward another million years it'll be completely different uh, and, and, and we're seeing it happening in front of our eyes with the black cap so I think it's a very very a good choice for, for for bird of the week because uh, a humble little bird perhaps but it's actually changing our whole idea of how we think about evolution
0: yikes that is cool i love that story and uh a brilliant 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 um uh curious thing to to end on so thanks for that yeah plenty to get your head around there i always think about birds that like the first challenge of birds is being able to identify them and um, like literally the birds by their plumage and and, and all that then you're thinking about bird song, which is another challenge that just it screws up most people altogether. A lot of people will just stop there. Then there's bird eggs, identifying them, their nests. Then you're thinking about their migration routes, where they go. Like, it's really, if you want something to sort of uh, chew on for a very long time, the birds. Uh, uh, as a as a as a sort of a topic, uh, it's a great hobby. It's a it's a great interest to have, and no matter where you go in the world, uh, depending on the time of year, you'll always have plenty of birds to look at and uh, enjoy, and think about where they're heading next. So it's 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 really enjoyable. So, um, it's great, and I mean you always say, um if if people uh, have listened to us for long enough and have stayed interested that they uh, probably they're, they're prime candidates for Birdwatch Ireland membership and we're getting very close to Christmas now so I know I'll be getting a few of the family topping up their membership for Birdwatch Ireland for next year as well so people should do that and they might be struggling for Christmas present ideas as well and um, we're all in a circular economy and we're trying to be more do, do more with our money and everything so um, do guys join up to Birdwatch all the good work they do and everything and um also, just want to mention our funders in uh, Leash, Offley, and Westmead County Councils and the Heritage Council. Let's not forget our super podcast editor, Anne Marie Kelly. So, thanks everyone, uh, and talk to you next time.